Well, hello everybody, my name is Clayton Keenan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Christ Community Church. And we're in the middle of a series called Elephants, The Questions We Can't Ignore. And I've got another elephant idiom for you. We've all heard the saying, an elephant never forgets. Was it true? Let's find out. Elephants are really smart. Fun fact, elephants have the largest brain of any land mammal. They can engage in complex communication, and researchers have even taught them how to do basic arithmetic and how to play simple melodies on instruments. They also have an incredible memory. Back in 1999, a new elephant named Shirley was introduced at the Elephant Sanctuary in Hohenwald, Tennessee. Immediately, one of the other elephants there named Jenny began to get agitated. The two elephants began to examine each other, looking at each other's scars and markings. And before long, the two elephants were trumpeting and making other noises. Why? Because they knew each other. These elephants had spent two months together, 23 years earlier as part of a circus, and they still remembered each other. That's incredible. This remarkable recall is a serious survival skill. Elephants are matriarchal. That means that the oldest living female is in charge of the herd. It's her job to lead the herd to safety and to help them find food and water. Scientists have shown that herds with older matriarchs tend to do better than those with younger matriarchs. That's because the older matriarchs have more memories to draw from. So for example, in a drought, a younger matriarch is more likely to stay put, but an older matriarch will lead her herd to another source of water that she remembers from a long time ago. Well, there you go. An elephant never forgets. Today, we've got a speaker I hope you'll never forget. Dr. David Lamb is a professor of Old Testament at Biblical Seminary in Pennsylvania. He's also the author of several books, including God Behaving Badly and Prostitutes and Polygamists, A Look at Love Old Testament Style. I told you it'd be memorable. Let's welcome David as he comes to the stage. It's great to be here with you all this morning. From age one to five, I lived just down the road in Downers Grove. And when I, I was about 50 years ago this summer, I went to my first Major League Baseball game at Wrigley Field, and I was hooked. Over the last 50 years, I've lived thousands of miles from Chicago in California, Pennsylvania, and England. But I've continued to be a diehard Cubs fan. This is long before the recent events of, of November 2016. Greetings to the folks here in St. Charles. Greetings to the folks at Blackberry Creek, Streamwood Bartlett, people online, and DeKalb. Hey, DeKalb, my sister went to uh, University of Northern Illinois. So I'm just saying, it's great to be with y'all here this morning. A few years ago, my wife and I went on a date, and we ended up chatting with our server. Most couples on dates focus on each other. My wife and I end up talking to servers a lot. I don't know what that means. Um, someone probably could give us help in our marriage. But this went on for a while. And finally the server turns. He says, so what do you do? I said, I teach the Bible. Mainly the Old Testament. He goes, the Old Testament. Isn't that where God's always getting angry and destroying cities all the time and smiting people all the time? I said, well, not exactly. But I get that question a lot, because the God of the Old Testament has a bad reputation. It's because of conversations like that that I wrote God Behaving Badly. Perhaps there's a few people here today that resonate 
with the perception of our young server. Why does God, particularly in the Old Testament, behave sometimes in what seems to be a bad manner? Why does he have such a bad reputation? I think there's a lot of reasons for it. And the sermon series this summer has been looking at and touching on some of those reasons. Christ Community Church has been talking about the elephants in the room. Those troubling questions that we can't ignore. Two weeks ago, Scott Sauls talked about narrow views of sexuality. And last week, Clayton spoke about horrible acts committed by Christians. This morning we ask, why is the Bible so violent? One of the reasons God has a bad reputation is all that bloodshed. Clayton talked about horrible acts committed by Christians, but much of the violence in the Bible was authorized by God himself. During the time of Noah, God wiped out humanity with a flood. During the time of Moses, God killed all the Egyptian firstborns and then drowned their army in the Red Sea. During the time of Saul, God told Saul to completely slaughter the Amalekites. During the time of David, God smote innocent Uzzah for just trying to stabilize the Ark of the Covenant. What's up with that? During the time of Hezekiah, God destroyed 185,000 Assyrians outside of Jerusalem. Our server seem to have a pretty accurate perception of God's behavior in the Bible. Why is the Bible so violent? Those of you guys who are familiar with your Bibles may be thinking, he skipped the worst bit. What about the Canaanites? Relax. We're going to get there. We're going to talk about the Canaanites this morning. There's actually too many examples of violence in the Bible to cover all of them in one sermon. If you've got some free time, I'll be around this afternoon. We could keep talking. I'm going to focus on only one, the Canaanite conquest in the book of Joshua. I think it's the most problematic one. And we can use lessons learned from the Canaanites as we think about other violent stories in Scripture. First, a little background to the story. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ended up in Egypt. That's pretty much the story of the book of Genesis. Now, the Egyptians needed some slaves. They needed some cheap labor to build all those pyramids, right? So they grabbed the, um, uh, the Israelites and made them slaves. This went on for hundreds of years. And then the Israelites cried out to God for help, and he sent them Moses, a deliverer. After defeating Egypt at the Red Sea, Israel spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness eating manna. What is it? Manna. Now, if you get tired of the things that you, you, you eat in your family, think about eating the same thing for 40 years, okay? Stop complaining. Finally, God led them across the Jordan River into the promised land of Canaan. Ah, but wait. There's a problem. There are people already living there. The Canaanites. Perhaps no part of the Bible 
gives God a worse reputation than his command to wipe out the Canaanite residents of the land, uh, of the, land of, uh, the promised land in Canaan. So what I want us to do is to start by looking at two passages that I think are um, going to give you some helpful, helpful background. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 20, God tells Moses his plan to deliver, and Moses is going to deliver this, this plan to the people about what he's going to do when they, uh, what they're going to do when they enter the land of Canaan. So this is Deuteronomy 20, chapter, uh, chapter 20, verse 16. However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. As the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. So that's the plan. In the book of Joshua, chapter 11, God's plan is implemented by Joshua and the Israelites. This passage, is focused, this passage focuses on the northern city of Hazor, Joshua 11, um, starting at uh, verse 10. At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all those kingdoms. Everyone in it, they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. And he burned Hazor itself. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds, except Hazor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities. But all the people they put to the sword and until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Whoa. To summarize the problem, God commanded his own people to completely destroy. Did you catch that? Repeated four times. Completely destroy all the Canaanites in the land. Anyone who breathed, which is going to include non-combatants like women and children. They put them to the sword. This story doesn't trouble you. You need to check your pulse. The problem of the Canaanites is a huge elephant. Why is the Bible so violent? I teach the Old Testament, so I get asked versions of this question on a regular basis, perhaps more than any other. Not just servers at restaurants, atheists when I speak on college campus, agnostics, Christians. They all say, what was God up to when he was commanding his, his people to wipe out an entire nation? Adolf Hitler attempted to do something similar to the Jews in World War II. Is God like Hitler? What's up with that? 
Questions like these can lead people to move away from God and even lose their faith. In my experience, those of us who are Christians are too quick to downplay some of these problems like these. And we make people who ask these types of questions feel like they're not being taken seriously or maybe even feel belittled as if it were were wrong or irreverent or disrespectful to ask questions about God's behavior. When we do that, we are ignoring the problem in the room. People who are asking about these elephants like violence in the Bible need to feel welcome in the church. We need to show them hospitality, to say to them, this is a safe place to talk about these issues. I'm really glad Christ Community Church is devoting its summer to these topics. As someone who loves the Old Testament and the God that is described in the Old Testament, I find the violence in the Bible, particularly the Canaanite genocide, deeply troubling. Now, while I may go to my grave struggling over this issue, fortunately, there are some good arguments that can help people understand why a loving God would command the destruction of the Canaanites. So I'm going to start off with two arguments that are often used to describe violence in the Bible, or particularly the Canaanite genocide, the Canaanite conquest. But I don't think these two arguments are very helpful. They don't really address the problem, and neither takes the text seriously. Now, I'm a professor, so I'm going to give give each argument a grade. Okay, that's just what I do. You may not agree with my grades. Uh, in fact, you might be offended if, if one of your, the arguments that you like gets a low grade. People complain about my grades all the time. My students do it, so I get used to that. But I still get to decide. That's just the way it is. So I'm going to start with the fictional argument. I'm going to summarize each argument, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit of what I think about it. This is the fictional argument. The Canaanite conquest, as described in Joshua, is fiction. If God's behavior in the Old Testament is not consistent with the behavior of Jesus in the New Testament, then one can discount or ignore the Old Testament account. And even if the Canaanite slaughter occurred, it wasn't commanded by God. That's how the argument goes. Now, the one thing I love about this argument is the problem goes away. Poof. (laughs) The the problematic divine mandate for genocide completely disappears. It just didn't happen. Yeah, but I don't like the fact that it establishes a precedent for throwing out parts of Scripture that don't make sense to us. However, you know what? Many Christian leaders, pastors, preachers, Bible school teachers kind of do the same thing by never teaching on troubling texts, by ignoring the elephants. If we get rid of the Canaanite conquest, why not get rid of the stories of the flood or the Passover or the smiting of Uzzah? History is full of people who attempted to edit out uncomfortable bits bits of the Bible that perhaps the two most famous are Marcion and Thomas Jefferson. 
Fortunately, though, their abridged Bibles never succeeded, and this argument doesn't either. My grade for the fictional argument is F, okay? F for fiction. Now, I have a friend named Eric who I would say supports, I'd say he supports a version of this argument. And a few years ago, Eric and I had a heated argument on biblical violence in the exhibition hall at one of the the largest conferences in the world for Bible nerds like us, okay? As this was going on, a crowd started to form, and they started to chant, fight, 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 fight. Okay, I'll talk about hyperbole later, all right? We're coming back to hyperbole. The crowd was actually not that big. There were five people, and there was no chanting. (laughs) But the argument was real. It's kind of ironic to have two Christian scholars fighting over the topic of violence in the Bible. Now, I don't always disagree with Eric. And in fact, there's a lot of positive things I can say about him. I enjoy listening to him, and I learn from my friend Eric. Talk to people you disagree with about these elephants. Take them out to lunch sometime and learn from them. That's the fictional argument. The whirlwind argument. This is how it goes. From the whirlwind, God speaks to Job. The late chapters in the book of Job. God speaks to Job with a barrage of questions, putting him in his place for questioning God's behavior. Who are we to question God? This is how the argument goes. We can never fully understand God, what God is doing, and the Canaanite conquest is just an example of another mystery that we can't possibly comprehend. I call this argument the trump card. Now think card games, not politicians, right? The trump card, because this card ends the game. Don't question God. Okay. Now this is an attractive card to play, and it's a favorite of actually of a lot of Christians. But it's not going to convince a true skeptic. In fact, it will probably just infuriate them. Now, I agree. We can't fully understand God and God's behavior. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't even try. See, my biggest problem with this argument is it goes up against so much of what we find in Scripture. The Bible is full of people who question God's behavior. Abraham, Moses, Gideon, Elijah, the psalmist, all did that. Surprisingly, at the end of the book of Job, God rebukes Job's three friends and God affirms the words of Job. God viewed Job's questions as speaking rightly. So we shouldn't conclude that God's speech from the whirlwind is meant to shut down this type of behavior. Even Jesus, on the cross, questioned God's behavior. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If Jesus 
can ask questions about God's behavior, isn't it okay for us too? People need to be encouraged to ask tough questions about the Bible. To ask about those elephants. Particularly when God does things we don't understand. Like commanding the destruction of the Canaanites. Take your tough questions to God in prayer. He can handle it. Some of you may be disappointed because this is one of your favorite arguments. (laughs) But my grade for the whirlwind argument is a D. Okay? No grade inflation in my classes. I just, it's just not that helpful. Five arguments that I think are more helpful I'm going to talk about next. I think these arguments address the problem more directly. They explain the context more accurately. And they take the text more seriously. Start with the, the context argument. The context argument. In Israel's ancient context, victorious nations often slaughtered defeated foes. The Canaanite conquest was not unusual. Ancient rulers even bragged about wiping out cities and killing women and children. Basically, this argument is saying what seems wrong to us was normal back then. Perhaps a comparison might help us understand this a little bit better. Think a little bit about hospitality. When a stranger knocks on our door, we don't automatically invite them over for dinner and and ask them to stay in our house for three days. That was normal back in the world of the Bible. Not today, but back then. We are shocked by ancient attitudes towards violence. Ancient Israelites would be shocked at our attitudes towards hospitality. They would say, we are barbarians. Context matters. Now, I normally find understanding the ancient context extremely helpful. So when you're thinking about some of those other problematic, violent parts of the Bible... Look at the context. Do a little homework there, and I hope you'll find it helpful. But the context argument here doesn't help us as much understanding the conquest, since it can sound a little bit like what a, a child might say to a parent. I mean, none of the children here would probably do this, and you know, I'm sure none of your children would do this, but theoretically we can think of other children who might say something like this. All the other nations are committing genocide, so why can't I slash Israel do it too? Right? It's just, it's just it's wrong, right? Yeah, but you know, it's not what's similar between Israel's conquest and that of Israel's neighbors that is the most relevant to this problem. Unlike Israel's neighbors who are expanding their borders to enrich their kingdoms, Israel was simply trying to gain a homeland. They had been refugees who had experienced hundreds of years of um, oppression in a foreign land, and they just needed a place to live. There are refugees, just like ancient Israelites, there are a lot of refugees in the world today that need to be shown hospitality. We're going to talk more about hospitality later. 
Now, I normally like the context argument, but here it only gets a C, okay? The hyperbole argument. The descriptions of the Canaanite slaughter are hyperbolic. Only a few passages speak of a widespread destruction. Many more speak of, many more, um, speak of numerous Canaanites still living in the land. So to harmonize these passages, one can conclude that there is some exaggeration in the slaughter texts. Now the hyperbole argument not only, helps, not only takes the text seriously, but helps us understand some of the tension we see in these different passages between a complete slaughter and what seems to be a local slaughter, a local one. Now some of you guys may feel a little bit uncomfortable about the, talking about the Bible using exaggeration. I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, which, by the way, is not in the Bible. Okay, just to be clear here in case you were confused. But we do find a lot of hyperbole in Scripture. Maybe the most famous was when Jesus speaks about the mustard seed being the smallest of all seeds. Now, any allergy sufferers out there know there's a lot of seeds that are much smaller than, allergies, than, um, than mustard seeds. Shannon and I had to make a trip to, um, to uh, Walgreens yesterday to pick up some Zyrtec, okay? We're, I'm very aware there's a lot of smaller seeds than mustard seeds. Jesus also says we need to hate our parents. But Jesus didn't literally mean hate there. Exaggeration is used in the Bible to emphasize in a, in a strong form something is really true. But the primary image we find in Scripture to use to describe the, the conquest of the promised land is not slaughter. Now, the, the, the violent texts, they get our attention. The ones I read, like Deuteronomy 20 and Joshua 11, they get our attention. Um, but the most common image is God talks about driving out the people of the land. A couple of times in Exodus, he talks about that, and a couple of times in Numbers, a couple of times in Deuteronomy, and in Joshua. God drove out the Canaanites. He drove them out with both angels and hornets, according to the text. So even before Israel had arrived, their numbers would have been greatly reduced before the conquest battles began. Now, the hyperbole argument is probably not going to convince a hardcore skeptic. But it is, it's a step in the right direction because it says there are other texts that we need to take into account as we, underst as we understand the Canaanite conquest. And it reminds us not to focus exclusively on the, the most problematic texts. As we think about the problem of violence in the Bible, we need to read all the relevant passages. Reading that much scripture is going to take a lot of work. But you know what? It'll be worth it. As I was preparing for this sermon, I actually wanted to nix, to, to eliminate the hyperbole argument. But my wife really likes it. And I do whatever she says, so I kept it in. That's clever, huh? Yeah, do whatever she says. I'm going to give the argument a B. I don't grade my wife, but if I did, she'd get an A+. Okay, I don't do that, but if she did. The punishment argument. 
This is how it goes. The Canaanites were punished for wicked behavior, which included idolatry, child sacrifice, and sorcery, and unwarranted attacks on defenseless Israel. Now, the strength of this argument is that it receives a lot of support from Scripture. But people often ask, doesn't it seem kind of unfair to violently wipe out a nation for being too violent? Yeah, maybe. But in the Old Testament, God consistently punished wicked nations with, with exile and with death. In fact, he does it to his own people. Canaanites were guilty of many crimes. And part of the severity of the judgment against them was due to their abundance of hostility and their absence of hospitality. Hospitality is a big theme in Scripture. Now, we may not be comfortable, I'm not comfortable, with the severity of the punishment. But part of our problem, I think, with the conquest narratives, the story in Joshua, and other violent stories in Scripture, comes from our discomfort with judgment. But punishment is found throughout Scripture. So we need to keep working to understand it. The wages of sin are death. We need to keep working to understand it and see somehow how it fits in with God's mission to bless the nations and to welcome the nations into his kingdom. Since the the punishment argument takes Scripture so seriously, I'm going to give it a B+. Get to the slow to the anger argument. The slow to anger argument. God was slow to anger with the Canaanites since he waited literally hundreds of years before punishing them. Back in Genesis, Genesis 15, when God established his covenant with Abraham, he told Abraham his descendants would be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. And then the judgment would eventually come upon the idolatrous people that lived in the land of Canaan. What was God doing while he waited for centuries? The Bible doesn't make it clear. But elsewhere, God is consistently described as being slow to anger. Waiting for 400 years definitely qualifies as being slow to anger. I get angry at the drop of a hat. For God, it takes centuries. During this extended, an extended period of waiting, God gave the Canaanites a long time to repent. Who paid the price for God's delay? God's own people. Because God is slow to anger, his people were not only homeless, but they were slaves and victims of oppression for centuries. I find this argument shockingly compelling since it speaks of both God's willingness to allow his people to suffer for the sake of others and his desire to be merciful to sinners. 
A trait we're going to see even more clearly in the final argument. I'm really glad God is slow to anger with me. I'm going to give this argument an A minus. Okay? It's hard to get an A in my classes, all right? A minus. And finally, the hospitality argument. The hospitality argument. From among the Canaanites, a righteous remnant was saved. Every person or nation that showed hospitality to Israel was delivered. Rahab and her, her entire family, this people called the Gibeonites, an unnamed man from Bethel, and the Canaan, Kenites later on, all of them were shown hospitality. Now, personally, I find this argument the most helpful. It's really just the story of Scripture. We all deserve death, but God shows mercy. The fact that these people are shown grace actually supports the slow to anger argument because it gives us further evidence that God wanted to give the Canaanites opportunities to repent. God didn't hate the Canaanites. He hated the crimes they committed. And he showed mercy to Canaanites who welcomed the foreigners. In God's law, he repeatedly commands his people to practice hospitality towards foreigners. The people that showed hospitality towards Israel were shown hospitality in return. Hospitality is a huge theme in Scripture, even more so than violence. We need to all be about welcoming people into God's kingdom. Hospitality is such a high value in Scripture. It's even shown to people who use deception. Read the story of the Gibeonites in Joshua chapter 9. And to people who are not paragons of virtue. Rahab was a prostitute. Somebody needs to write a book about prostitutes and polygamists in the Bible, I tell you. Against a backdrop of brutal violence, in one of the darkest most troubling sections of Scripture, hospitality towards foreigners stands out like a beacon of light, a beacon of hope. God's voice may be absent as an initiator of these rescues, but he never condemns these acts of hospitality, mercy towards the Canaanites. And the New Testament's perspective on Rahab is shockingly positive. This Canaanite prostitute is praised for her faith in Hebrews 11. The conqueror Joshua never even gets mentioned in Hebrews 11, but Rahab does. And Rahab is praised for her hospitality in James chapter 2. Rahab is given a place of high honor at the very beginning of the New Testament in the genealogy of Jesus. She's the second person, the second woman mentioned in the New Testament. Rahab, the Canaanite, was welcomed into the family of Jesus. Why is hospitality so important? Well, hospitality is it's the solution to violence. Hospitality is the solution to violence. Welcoming foreigners, even when we think they may be a threat, 
After all, Jesus said, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Be a person of hospitality. A person who welcomes people who ask hard questions. A hospitality argument is my favorite. It gets an A+. Speaking of A+, my wife Shannon has taught me a lot of ho- about hospitality. In the fall of 2001, my family was living in student housing in Oxford, England. We were surrounded by people from all over the world, including a Muslim family from Libya. Since the U.S. and Libya did not have good diplomatic relations, we had never met a Libyan family before. We thought of them as our enemies. A few weeks after 9-11, my wife Shannon was praying. She felt like God was telling her to invite the Libyan family over to our flat for dinner. She didn't think that was going to be a good idea. It could be awkward. Hey, your country and our country hate each other. Muslim terrorists just killed thousands of Americans in New York and D.C. But let's hang out and talk. Awkward. But you know what? Hospitality is always risky. God kept bringing the Libyans to mind. So Shannon eventually went down and knocked on their door. She was hoping and praying that the the wife would show up. The door opens up. Tariq, the father that is there. Shannon paused. Awkward silence. Eventually, Shannon says, We know you're Muslim. You know we're Christians. But we would like to invite you to our flat for dinner. Pause. Awkward silence. More awkwardness. Tariq just stares. Tariq finally tears up and says to us, says to Shannon, no Christian has ever invited us into their home before. We would be delighted to join you. We had a great time at our flat. Two weeks later, they invited us to come to their flat. Hospitality. Be people who invite Muslims and people of other faiths into your homes. A few weeks later, in December, Shannon organized a nativity play for our entire housing complex. Participants included Christian children from the U.S. and Australia, Jewish boys from Israel. They were the shepherds. Muslim children from Libya. They were the wise men. In his incarnation, Jesus came to bring peace to the earth and to reconcile people to each other and to God. If you're like me, you're going to probably keep asking the question, why is the Bible so violent? But as you ponder over this question, hopefully you're going to remember some of these arguments and recall how they can help you make sense of some of that violence in the Bible. Three final words. One, keep asking questions about the text of Scripture. Keep talking about these elephants. As you do that, keep going back to God's Word. It will move you, it will bring you into a deeper relationship with God. Two, discuss these types of problems 
with friends, with family. Talk about it over lunch on your drive home. We all desire the depth of friendship that comes, a, comes about as to, when we talk about things that matter. And three, remember that hospitality shown to a Canaanite woman over a thousand years before Christ played a role in God's ultimate act of hospitality, sending Rahab's descendant, Jesus, into the world to die for the sins of the entire planet. Let's pray. God, we need help. Hospitality is risky. It's scary. God, we live in a violent world. And there's a lot of violence in Scripture. Help us to understand it. Help us to be people who are peacemakers, who bring peace, who show hospitality even to people that we may think are our enemies. Lord, help us, Jesus. Help us. We pray this in your name. Amen.